Welcome, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Well, the tagline is bigger than sport, and I don't think it gets much bigger than this episode today. Today I have Major Jordan Inger, a U.S. Army veteran who was awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for his service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Jordan came on and blew me away with his honesty, with his willingness to be frank and share stories of struggle, share stories of addiction, and share his story of being critically injured by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan, along with the story of his brother-in-arms who sacrificed himself to save everyone else by dragging the suicide bomber away. I had goosebumps for much of the time I was speaking with Jordan. At times, I forgot to even speak into the mic. I was so enthralled with what he was sharing, with the honesty he was sharing. This story is incredible. It's a story of sacrifice. It's a story of true heroes. It's truly unbelievable. And it was such an honor to have Jordan Inger on the show. Thank you, Jordan, for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, the incredibly powerful, the incredibly brave, Major Jordan Inger. All right, Jordan, we're live, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So I'm joined by Major Jordan Inger today. And, buddy, I'm extremely grateful that you're willing to share your story with us. So let's start from the very beginning. Where'd you grow up? Are you from a big family, military family? Tell us about that. Sure. I was born in uh, Kerrville, Texas. My parents at the time were working in a children's home as house parents for these orphans in Bandera, Texas at Medina's Children's Home, and it was ran by the Church of Christ, both my parents. My mom is still Church of Christ, and so was my dad at the time. And so it's a very fundamentalist, Christian denomination. They don't really believe in dancing or drinking or any of the fun stuff that Catholicism, which is what I converted to. You ran to as fast as you could. <laughs> That's what, yeah, right. So I was born in Kerrville. It was the closest hospital. Moved, I guess, as a little kid, you know, I don't remember this, but moved around between Alabama and Louisiana and then back to Texas. My dad ended up taking a job as a supervisor at St. Mary's Hospital. And so my dad was always kind of in like, hospital janitorial services and my parents divorced when they were six and uh it was not it was not an amicable divorce you know being six years old when that happens it's hard for i think kids to I think kids internalize kids are a lot more perceptive than we give them credit for sure and you know my parents were definitely not perfect i think they did their best looking back as an adult and as a husband and as, and as a father, it's more imperative, I think, to try to be as grounded as you can and try to be emotionally available to your kids. I think that's really where most of our problems in society happen is parents were not emotionally available or emotionally mature in the relationships with their kids, meaning that they're able to be there for their kids and their kids aren't there to try to prop them up or give them validation. The parents need to be the ones to give 
kids nowadays. Well, and I would argue too that it was a different time. I, it, I think when we were growing up, that especially for a dad, um, but even for the mom, it was more tough love and right. The research on being emotionally available, speaking to your kids about what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Was not something that happened in the seventies and eighties and nineties no. like it does now, which I think we've made a good move. You would have been laughed out of the room, and you would have been considered soft and new age and granola and hippie. And like I said, my parents did the best that they could. Who did you end up living with? Your mom or your dad, or did you go back and forth? So I lived with my mom. Ended up staying with my mom, and you know I love my mom and I love my dad both. But the other thing too, I will say is my parents—they were both nineteen. Oh, wow. And so, you know, if I had gotten married at 19, there's no doubt I'd be divorced because sure. I think, and I'm sure you've seen the studies that have come out, I think just in the last five to 10 years that the human brain doesn't stop developing until you're about the age of 26. So you think about that. You think about how it's made me realize too, to kind of take a step back when I'm getting frustrated with my four-year-old son, he's not even a, you know, a quarter of the way through that brain development. and. I can't be getting mad at him if he's climbing on me and continuing to like yell and scream and tantrum. His brain's not even a quarter of the way to being fully developed. Yeah, I think, you know, at 19 years old, my parents both came from, they both came from childhoods where there was, you know, definitely trauma, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and that really can hurt a kid and damage it, wound a kid. And unless you really work on yourself and do that work on yourself, you don't really get better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question that affects how you parent growing up. But it sounds like they were able to to make the best of it. They were. I mean, I definitely think even to this day, I still have, you know, like I said, I love my parents, but they, you know, they, they have their journey. And do I think they dealt with their issues i don't know i can't i can i can i can say that they definitely did i i think they did the best they could but they didn't know kind of like what i know about and that's only going through my journey and realizing like having to deal with my childhood trauma my childhood issues i don't know if you picked this up and you know looking up my bio but you know i'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, no. Yeah, so I've been sober 14 years. I just picked up my 14-year chip in AA. Congratulations, man. Awesome. Yeah, so thank you. Getting into drugs and alcohol, do you think that had a lot to do with your childhood or your time in the military or both? I think both. Um, Well, really, it's my childhood. In my opinion, most of your issues are going to come from your formative childhood years. 95% 95% of the time. You know, I went out to do a workshop after I got back from Iraq for my third tour. And I went out to do a workshop at a world-renowned treatment center that treats addictions of all types. Uh, drugs, alcohol, sex and love, overeating, gambling. It kind of, they're kind of one of the best treatment centers out there. And I went out there to do a workshop. And it's amazing what I learned about childhood trauma and 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 some childhood traumas you know they call it little t and big t you know like you get screamed at and then you know you get whipped or hit with a belt or you get shamed you know a lot of the family dynamics with family of origin is a lot of times 
you get shamed. Like you see something that your parents do and it's a behavior that makes you uncomfortable and you say something about it as a kid and you get told, no, you didn't see that or I can't believe you would say something like that. And so going out there and doing this workshop, I think it was groundbreaking for me because I learned healthy parenting was and learning how to basically reparent myself. And I think that's a common theme with a lot of addicts is having to learn how to reparent yourself and really do the hard work and dig really, really deep. You know, I got sober right after I got injured. In fact, the journey started before I got injured, but it wasn't until I was hooked up with this woman while I was deployed and it was not an appropriate relationship. It was a relationship that I'm not proud of. And she ended up breaking me over the phone and I ended up finding a phone number on a pamphlet going to my first meeting before I left for Afghanistan and I took a satellite phone and went up to the roof to try to get reception and started dialing all these numbers and ended ended up calling the guy who ended up becoming my first sponsor for the next five, six years before he died of cancer and he saved my life. He basically talked me out of sticking the end of my M sixteen in my mouth and wow. I was I was in I was in rough, rough shape. I mean there were some days where I would get up and I couldn't function. And here I am, I'm a captain in the Army. I'm, I'm acting as the operations officer for this provincial reconstruction team in Coast. Um, and I've got a, 13 guys that are responsible for me. I'm supposed to be planning all these missions outside the wire, and I can't even function. And all I can think about is this woman, you know, cheating on me, not to mention I was in a relationship with a woman that was married. You know, this is... This goes completely against what I was taught as a kid. You know, you never do that. You know, you obey the Ten Commandments, you know. And, yeah, I mean, it turned my world upside down. And I remember there were a couple times where I would pray to God. I was like, send a mortar round in or blow me up. Just don't kill anybody else. Just what's funny is I had my mid-tour leave in November. This breakup happened in August. And I had my mid tour leave in November of 2006. And I was able to coordinate my leave to where my brother, who was serving in Iraq at the time, he was enlisted. He was a, he was a sergeant in E5. And we actually met up in Kuwait and flew home on the same flight for mid tour leave. And we got to spend Thanksgiving back here in Houston. And it was on that mid tour leave that I worked steps four through nine with my sponsor. And you start that process of really clearing away the wreckage of your past. Well, I don't know a ton about the 12-step program, but right. I have read a bit about it, and it almost sounds like it would benefit anyone, regardless of whether you're an addict. And I'll say a couple of things about your story you just shared. Number one, it takes a hell of a lot of strength to pick up the phone and make those calls. And so kudos to you there. And maybe this is a bit arrogant to say at this point, but my vision is that some young soldier hears Major Jordan Inger speaking this way, talking about your struggles, your vulnerabilities, and they realize that they're not alone. And I think you're talking about evolving, working on yourself. I think too many people that are elite performers like yourself or in athletics don't share these struggles like you have. And then someone says, well, no one that was ended up 
overseeing 900 soldiers like you were eventually has problems like I do. I must be odd. I must be weird. Right. To have you speak this way, I think is, is huge. I think it's so powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, I, I've never commanded 900 people. I, the most I've commanded is 225 people, but I was the, you know, operations officer for a 900 person battalion as a major. So as a captain, I was a company commander. I, you know, I hadn't, hadn't made it to that level of commanding that many people, but, but here, here's the thing. I commanded all those guys after I got sober. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't gotten sober, none of that. If I hadn't gotten sober, I wouldn't have the life. I, I wouldn't be talking to you now. I'd probably be dead or in some miserable podunk town chasing after unhealthy women. Well, hopefully what we'll cover today is here's the path. If you are out there struggling, here's the path. And it doesn't always look like the commander that's in charge of 225 people early in life. Sometimes you have to go through some struggles. And sometimes your journey, actually forget sometimes, Everyone's journey zigzags, and sometimes that journey turns around and goes the complete opposite direction right. you wanted to go. Right. And that's perfectly normal. My right. point would be keep moving forward, keep doing what you're doing. Well, let's right. backtrack a little bit. It sounds like you didn't have any military in your family. Did you grow up wanting to serve your country? What were your interests as a child? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say I want to say one I want to say one thing, and then I want to go. I want to address what you just asked. When you said looking at the 12 steps, you know, it seems like a, a great way to live your life. I remember my, my first sponsor saying, Jordan, if you don't stick it out in this program and you decide you want to go back and have the experiences you used to say, I remember I used to get so upset with him when I, he'd tell me to do something I didn't want to do it. And he's like, well, maybe you need to go out and have the experience. And, uh, he told me that the 12 steps, he's like, even if you, don't take anything from this program. The 12 steps is a great way to live your life. And he's right. I think everyone should live. I think if you look at all the major tenets of any major religion out there, you're going to see elements of the 12 steps. And that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs is we're not in there reading the Bible. You have people that are black, white, gay, trans, off just off the streets living under a bridge guys that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars if we could get past all the political division that we see today that's what life should be about it's a great equal we're all trying and we're all there to try to help each other stay sober and live a fulfilling life that's it so going to your question about uh i think as as a young kid you know i'm sure i'm like a lot of young kids i had a fascination with being a cop or being in the military and playing army. And I, you know, I had GI Joes and I loved like playing war, except wars, as I've learned, is not a, <laughs> it's not a game. But when you're a kid, you're like wanting to go p- play guns and march people around and have these battles. And, and, uh, you know, I had, I had a great uncle that, uh, he's still alive. He was a, he was a crew chief on a Huey in Vietnam and, my dad's dad was in the Air Force. He was, uh, in fact, he, I think he was recruited by the CIA. He was an intelligence guy. Um, so yeah, my, my dad was not in the military. You know, my mom wasn't in the military, but I kind of always wanted to serve. And it wasn't until I was in the court A&M, the second semester of my freshman year, I got offered an Army ROTC scholarship. That's when I decided to make the decision to give this army thing a try as an officer and got my commission and commissioned as a second lieutenant went from there. 
do you think you were uniquely equipped from a young age to take on burdens for the rest of us? That's how I see the military. They're taking on burdens for those that can't. And in preparation for this interview, I read an interview from one of the SEALs that was on the bin Laden raid. And he described his reason for fighting as he felt he was uniquely equipped to stand up for those that could not fight or for those that were forced into the fight. Do you relate to this? Do you feel like from a young age you were uniquely equipped or you grew into this Um, Man, you know, I'm not a Navy SEAL. I'm your run-of-the-mill guard variety Army officer. I was an armor officer. I wanted to be a tanker. That's what I wanted to be. I remember watching Patton. Patton was one of my favorite movies as a little kid. Patton was an armor officer, and I always wanted to be a tanker. And so I, I'm not one of these special community, you know, special warfare, special community warfare guys. You know, you like, didn't grow up saying this is who I am. This is who I want to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. I I didn't really, I really didn't know. I think it wasn't until I was in the Corps at A&M that it was like, well, I could probably do this for a living. Now I've, I'd always had a sense of obligation and duty to my country. But yeah, it wasn't until I remember, I remember when I was a cadet at A&M, when I was a student at A&M, and I remember my parents, they went to some benefit and they were like, oh, we met this medical service corps captain that's in the army and he's like running a hospital and you know, you could, you could do this and get out and go run a hospital. And I was like, if I'm joining the army, I want to be combat arms. I either want to be infantry, armor, or field artillery. Like, I don't want to be. I mean, that's the purpose of the army is to, is to close with, engage, and destroy the enemy. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do it in a tank rather than being one of those, those infantrymen that have to suck it up and, and march everywhere with a pack on their back. Screw that. I'd, I'd rather ride in the battle. Well, let's go there. So you go to Texas A&M. You join the Corps. You develop this interest for joining the military. Graduate in 2002, I believe. Yeah. And then in 2003, you do take your post in the Army as a tank platoon leader. Is That's right. correct? That's in right. Iraq. That's right. Tell us what it means to be a tank platoon leader. What were your responsibilities? What were sure. Your, what was your team's responsibility? Yeah. So as a tank platoon leader, um, you're responsible for four tanks and 15 men. So 16 men total, including yourself. So you're in charge of your tank as a tank commander, and then you're in charge of the other three tanks. And each tank commander is at least an E6, a staff sergeant, and your platoon sergeant is going to be an E7. And there's four people in the tank. There's the tank commander, which is a platoon leader. You're also a de facto tank commander because you command your tank. You have a loader who loads the rounds into the main gun out of the the main hole. Uh, You have the gunner who sits below you, and he's the one blazing and blazing targets. From the command position, you can also fire rounds. And then you have the driver, who's basically kind of sitting kind of in a in a position where you're kind of laying down. You've got these little kind of like uh, motorcycle handles, and you kind of pivot and steer the tank. Most people would find it fascinating. Like, I don't think anybody would turn down the opportunity well, to drive That's why I asked about it. I was curious. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I imagine also you draw a ton of fire. You don't have to get into that, but the tank's probably drawing fire. Sure. No, well, and that's what what armor's supposed to do. Armor's supposed to draw the fire and provide the cover for the infantry. You know, you, so infantry likes, every, every combat arms guy likes to say that they're the best and that, you know, they like to brag. 
and you know you can't have infantry without armor and you can't have armor without infantry because infantry has to go in and clear buildings the tank can't go clear a building yeah you know being uh, an armor officer it was fun you did you did your training at Fort Knox you got to do all four positions you got to learn all four positions so you got to actually as a lieutenant drive a tank gun a tank and that's stuff that you're not going to do once you get to your unit. Once you get to your unit, you're now the tank commander. You're never going to drive a tank again. Well, Tune Sergeant better not catch a lieutenant driving a tank, you know, because that's not what you do. Went horribly wrong. I <laughs> yeah. That's right. Tell us a little bit about, I'm going to use the word typical, which you may say there is no typical. What's the typical setup for the U.S. Army in Iraq? Are you guys outside of town in a segregated base, separate from the local sure. community? Are you right in the middle of town in what I would call a convention center that you guys have taken over what is that typically sure sure uh it all depends on what unit you were with and what your you know what what division your unit or what mission your division ended up getting like for my first tour in iraq we were in the green zone and i'm sure you've probably heard that term before somewhere in the news the green zone the green zone was basically the center of iraq it's where the government all the government facilities the parliament was at the Al Rashid Hotel. There's it's that famous hotel that Bernard Shaw and a couple of the other CNN reporters are reporting from during the first Gulf War. It's basically the seat of power. So they basically walled everything off, and we were in charge of security for that. I was in th- uh, three eight cabs, third battalion, eighth cavalry. Were you living there? We were living in the green zone on a fob. It was uh it was heady times. I mean, it was kind of the wild wild west. Um, and this is right before we'd just gotten some up-armored Humvees. In fact, when we deployed in April of 2004, here I am, you know, a 24-year-old second lieutenant. Uh, they thought it was going to be a cakewalk, and then Sadr City kind of popped off, and we didn't even bring our tanks with us. So we were going to be we were going to be motorized, essentially infantry inside of Humvees, you know, where we could dismount from a Humvee. And then Sadr City erupted, and then I was like, oh, shit, we need to get these guys their tanks. So they ended up shipping our tanks from Fort Hood to Iraq. And a couple months later, I'm on Haifa Street, which is one of the most dangerous streets at the time in Baghdad. And we're we're running with 1st Squadron, 9th Cavalry, supporting them on Haifa Street, going up and down Haifa Street, trying to you know, basically doing thunder runs to provide support to the infantry. Like you said, you know, draw that fire and, and try to seek out the enemy so that the infantry could close with and engage with them. I mean, I, it was, I only spent two weeks on a tank in combat, but I will tell you, it's probably one of the two best weeks of my life as an army officer. It was what you get trained to do and it was fun. We got, I got shot at. My wingman got shot right in the Kevlar and, uh, I was not on that mission. I was actually back at the FOB, but he got shot right in the nugget and went down into the turret. He did not he did not die. It stopped the AK round. And so it it was just crazy. I it mean, sounds like a baptism by fire, but not only were you learning, it sounds I mean this is not that long after nine eleven. The army's still learning. It sounds right. like not having tanks there. You said something about being the best time of your life. I'm not sure exactly what the quote was. Have you read any Sebastian Younger, his book Tribe? Uh, I have not, but You're, have. You'll, you can leave with my copy. Okay. But he speaks about this phenomenon of what you just said, that war can be the worst time in people's life, but it can also be the best time. And right. it sounds like you experienced some of that. I did. Well, but what I will tell you about that first tour is I pretty much ended my army career in that first tour. 
it's funny. I say I ended it. I didn't get out until 2015. So that was 11 more years that I had in the army. So I made a huge mistake as a lieutenant. I was a brand new second lieutenant. I had two negligent discharges. Most people will call them accidental discharges, but the army, it's negligent. You're negligent. It's not accidental. You discharge your weapon when you weren't supposed to. The first one I had was in a clearing barrel at a dining facility ran by KBR, you know, the big contractor, Kellogg Brown and Root. It was in the green zone. We were, I was in a hurry. I was hungry. I didn't drop my magazine. I pulled back and I shot around into the clearing barrel. I got a local letter of reprimand, which means when you leave the unit, the reprimand that's in your file gets destroyed. Midway through the tour, and I think there was a common theme here with my first two tours. My head wasn't in the game. And and what it goes back to, what I realized later, I was an addict. I used relationships as a way of getting affirmation and getting, you know, try, basically trying to make me a whole person when in reality you can't fill that hole until you do your work and you go through sobriety and you do that hard work. and. You have to realize you have to be okay by yourself. You were also a kid, I might add, 24 years old. I don't want to get into what I was doing when I was 24 years old. Right. I think that's what we miss. Right. I mean, you're certainly a man, but we have kids right. over I, there fighting for I'm, us. I am shocked, shocked that I didn't get someone killed. Shocked. And so second negative discharge was on a 50 caliber machine gun. I was having problems charging because of 50 caliber. I mean, it's, it weighs a hundred pounds. It's huge. I mean, we've had this, it's a beast of a gun. It sits on top of your tank. It's the commander's primary weapon system. And so I'm having a hard time charging it. And, uh, I reach over to kind of pull with my other arm and my forearm hit the butterfly. So when the, the charging handle rode forward, it sent two rounds up into the air over the green zone and somewhere in the downtown Baghdad. And at that point, I knew my, that's it. My career is over. So I get off the tank and I sign a sworn statement attesting, Hey, I did this. And, um, so they removed me from my platoon and everything was starting to look good. Like I was actually going to look, it looked like I was in line to potentially take the scout platoon, which is a, as a lieutenant, Getting a second platoon is always a great thing. And getting the scout platoon, that's a big, a big deal. Well, I ended up not only not getting that, ended up getting a, a Gomer, a general officer memorandum of record. And that goes in your permanent file. And it's called derogatory paper or derogatory information. It basically is a career killer. And so I got this Gomer and they stuck me in a staff position and this girl ended up she broke up with me and, and I just, I just remember just feeling this sense of failure and sense of loss. And so I get back to Fort Hood in 2005 and I basically get sent over to a special troops battalion to become an executive officer for a headquarters company. So as an executive officer in charge of all the maintenance, it's kind of the natural progression of a lieutenant, but you always want to stay with the cab world, but I got sent out. Like, you're going to go to this other unit, out of sight, out of mind. That's when I ended up meeting this woman that I ended up getting into this other relationship with, and just my head was never in it. And I remember at that point, I knew I wanted to get out of the Army. And I wanted the refrad, which refrad is basically 
means separation from the Army, where you do your time, you've done your four years, and you get out. I was coming up on my four years, and I wanted to get out. But at the time, everyone that was in the in the Army, active Army, they were basically under stop loss, where like your if your unit was supposed to deploy, like we were basically deploying every other year. You'd be home for a year, and then you'd deploy the next year. You'd be home for a year and deploy the next year. And so my unit was supposed to deploy again, and which would have put me into 2007, which, you know, I got, you know, I came on active duty in 2002. So it would have put me a year plus over my refrag. They said, Hey, look, if you volunteer for this provincial reconstruction team, a PRT, you become an individual augmentee. You get basically get separated from the first cavalry division, which is the division I was in. And you go do this assignment in Afghanistan because they need men to fill key personnel spaces. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. If that means I could come back and yeah, I'm still past my refrad date, but I still get, can get out. I'll do it. So I volunteered to go to Afghanistan so that I could get out of the army early. And, um, and uh, your world got rocked, which we'll get into <laughs> in a bit. Yeah. So you've been on multiple deployments, Afghanistan and Iraq. Are these wildly different environments? Are you being thrust into different settings each time you go over? Are there different objectives? Yes. Yes. Talk us, compare and contrast maybe briefly Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a rougher place to fight. Iraq was tough. A lot of people died unfairly in Iraq, by the way, because we started a war based on faulty intel. You know, like I said, my view has changed, you know, but yeah, Iraq was, is much different. Iraq, has infrastructure, it has roads. It tends to be more westernized. You can get to places easy. The mission set is a little bit different. So it's definitely more urban. And it's um yeah, the mission the first tour in Iraq, you know, it was basically to secure Baghdad and allow for us to be able to build up the Iraqi army, which we had dismantled, and get the new transitional provisional government put into place to where we could basically hand off Iraq to the Iraqis and eventually step away. It did not go that way. We won't go down that road. Right. So Afghanistan, I didn't realize it obviously until I got injured. If you don't have air support, you don't have choppers. If the weather turns bad and you have air conditions are called red, there's green, yellow, and red, green, amber, and red. You can't get helos to launch. So if you get injured or you come into attack in Afghanistan, you're you're going to either have to gun it out yourself, or wait and wait till air conditions improve to where you can get choppers into either medevac or resupply. It's mountainous. There's not very many urban centers. I mean, you've got Kabul, you've got Jalalabad, you've got Kandahar, but other than that, it's very rural. It's very agrarian. It's not these big urban centers. And, and so it's, it's mountainous. It's very tough. These folks have been fighting the Soviets and now they're fighting us. The Taliban, I mean, they, they're, they're tough. And so, yeah, the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan, they're both tough. I mean, but Afghanistan, I think is, is just more visceral. It's brutal. Let's go to coast Afghanistan, which is a place that you'll never forget. What was your position and what was your responsibility in coast? 
Yeah, my, my position, I was a, the operations officer, the S3 for PRT Coast, Provincial Reconstruction Team Coast. Your whole mission was to increase the, the capacity and the governance of Afghanistan to help bring about change. So your job was to support local governments, get them the funding they needed to do outreach and to basically show their presence. You know, since the Afghanistan government, the centralized government is powerful, but the local governments are weak. So you were trying to increase the, the, the reach of the government. We just talked about Afghanistan being mountainous and rural. Coast is actually a city, a fair, a decent sized city on the Pakistani border. Probably. Right. It, it was. Okay. I mean, it, you know, it'd probably be the, like the equivalent of like New Bronzeville. So, you know, it's, it, it's not a huge city, but it's big enough. And, but yeah, you know, our job in that on a provincial reconstruction team, we weren't doing kinetic operations. We were doing what's called non-kinetic operations. And that's like helping fund projects, helping build schools, emergency rooms, you know, helping um, distribute humanitarian supplies, helping train the police. The base I was on was Fob Chapman. And at the time, Fob Chapman didn't exist. If you've ever seen uh, Zero Dark Thirty, it's the base where those seven CIA agents were whacked by a suicide bomber. They were whacked in a gym. I used to work out in this gym. I probably was right on that spot where that suicide bomber took out all those CIA agents. And I was on a fob where like C-130s would fly in and out of all hours of the night. You'd hear stuff going on. You're like, well, what's going on? I mean, so we had CIA, OGA, which is uh, special forces. It could have been the ones that I saw were Green Berets, but there very well could have been Navy SEALs and so Delta a, there. It's a base where combat missions were being launched, but yeah. your group was not necessarily That's right. there for combat missions. That's right. Okay. We were strictly, strictly non-kinetic. But they definitely used us to get at some of their aims, you know, and to address some of the, the mission sets that they were trying to do. Was it typical for your team to come in contact with the enemy, with combatants? Or that would be a Yeah, I mean, they, you know, we had a couple incidences where they got, you know, guys who got on patrol got, you know, shot at. It wasn't atypical, though, for you to come in contact with combatants or suicide yeah, bomber. Well, it happened, which I find interesting because. I've read quite a bit about it, and I understand only 10% of veterans actually see combat. Right. And it sounds like you're right in the middle of it your entire time. So, so here's the crazy thing about that tour. I hadn't left the FOB but maybe two or three times. And I, just to be clear, the FOB is the base? The FOB, yeah, okay. Ford Operating Base. That's okay. what FOB stands for. I hadn't left the FOB for but a couple times during that tour. And I was two months from coming home. I, life had started to get better for me. Like, as I mentioned earlier, that's when I had started working the 12 steps. I'd cut myself off from this unhealthy person in my life and I started to get, get my shit together. Things started to really come good. Uh, like I was like looking forward to coming home and transitioning out of the army. Everything was great. Like I didn't want to kill myself anymore, <laughs> which is a plus. Uh, I'd gotten past that and, uh, through the work of my sponsor and the program and, yeah, everything was looking great. And then February 20th, 2007 happened. Let's talk February 20th, 2007. Start at the beginning of the day. What do you remember about how the day started? What was the morning routine? What yeah. were the goals for that day? I think it was like any other ordinary day. I just woke up, we got dressed. We, had, we knew we had this mission in town. We just built this 
we'd gotten the funding to build this emergency room for the coast hospital. I'd been there two days before. And in fact, I have a picture of myself squatting down with these kids taking a picture on the spot that the suicide bomber blew himself up on. So it's weird being in, being there two days before it happened. Me and then Staff Sergeant Jason Fetty, you know, went out to do the recon and figure out where we were going to place security because the governor of the province was speaking, um, who was eventually assassinated. It were like a lot of these governors, these guys that, you know, bravely step up in key positions and end up getting whacked. My commander, uh, who's now, I believe he's, um, I think he's an admiral, uh, Admiral John Wade. He was a, an 05 then. He was a commander. They were going to be speaking at this, so we needed to figure out where we wanted to place You security. were running security for this event. Right. This I was in charge of, of this the security room. Yeah, I was in charge of the security plan. You said, obviously, you were there with Jason Fetty. What was the makeup of your team? How many team members did you have? Right. Uh, were they under your command? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were ultimately under... Commander Wade's command, but as the S3, you know, we came up with a plan and then we, you know, we had a, we had a, a military police platoon that was attached to us. We also had Afghan. We had Afghans that were, that we had paid that were basically an extra security detail. And there were some brave, brave guys. They carried AK 47s and they did it at risk of their own lives, you know, because they're natives, you know, and. Uh, they were some of the bravest men I've ever been around. And, and, you know, you hear a lot of horror stories in Afghanistan of a lot of Americans have gotten killed because they've been over training the Afghan National Army or the National Police and they get whacked by a guy who's in the army or the police. And they, but this wasn't the case. These guys were all like 100% on board. So we came up with a plan. We figured out where we wanted to put the guys. We had a little diagram I drew up. Yeah, so we went back and, you know, day goes by and then the, then we go out there for the morning, that morning to set everything up. And everything was like any typical combat mission I'd ever been on, Iraq or Afghanistan. And uh, I had just gotten done scoping out the inside and the ceremony began. And the, the governor started speaking and I'm like, man, there were all these tribal dignitaries and I imagine this is the type of event where you're on high alert. I mean, if there's a time when there's going to be an attack, sure. this seems to me being a novice is, hey, you've got Americans speaking, you have governors speaking, they've just put a lot of money into this infrastructure right. project. You are, but you aren't, because I think you can't live your life like that. Yeah. There's only so much, if you think about it, you try to, you know, you're on high alert the whole time, you're just kind of like, eh, you know, I mean... There's only so much time you can be on high alert. Describe what alerted your team yeah. that there was a threat and describe what that threat was. So I just got done checking, you know, walking around the inside of the perimeter. Everything looked good. I went outside to do a radio check with, with our fob. Everything seemed clear. So I'm like sending up a report. Um, I'd left my rifle in the cab of the Humvee because I had someone in there. And there's someone up on the gun. I had just made my report. And then all of a sudden I hear screaming. This is all inside of a walled compound, you know. I ended up hearing it screaming and, and, and shouting and, and gunfire. I started hearing some rounds pop off. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm outside this walled compound. That'd essentially be like me just down the street. I immediately start running towards it. And I'm like, oh my God. So. 
there there was like a little pedestrian entrance and a vehicle entrance and like a little post in between. And so I peer my head in and I see Jason tussling with this guy dressed up like a doctor. He's got a white lab coat on. He's Afghan. And the guy's like screaming and shouting. And Jason like falls on top of him, like tackles him. And the guy starts to reach underneath his white lab coat and starts trying to trigger. And Jason shoots him. And then, I mean, a lot of it's so much of a blur. It's like sometimes I wonder if I'm ever going to get a clear picture of what happened because everything happened so quickly. And sometimes, too, like sometimes it feels like everything happened in slow-mo. Like, like, you know, in Saving Private Ryan, when they stormed the beach and – there are those moments where Tom Hanks kind of just loses like his senses for a minute, like looking around and watching guys on fire and nitpicking, trying to find their limbs. And, you know, he puts on his helmet and blood is bloodied waters coming over his head. That's kind of how it felt like, I was like, Whoa, you know, like, so I was like, what the fuck? So I immediately, I got cut, I took cover and I had my pistol I wish I had my rifle, but I had my pistol and I locked and loaded it and I stepped back out. And But this time the guy tried to detonate again and Jason was able to get away, but Jason got him on his belly facing belly down. Pause for a second sure. and talk about Sergeant First Class Jason Fetty. Yeah. He is a, uh, I don't have the words, but he is an instrumental character, not only on this day, but in your life and someone to certainly be respected and talked about. Describe his actions that day. So Jason Fetty is the first one to recognize this gentleman in a lab coat doesn't seem to be a doctor. Right. This guy, and we talk think about him. Yeah. yeah talk yeah. about his actions and what he went through as much as you can remember. Yeah. No, I mean, he, you know, he was my right hand man for this mission. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this we we think late we we think this guy snuck in the night before in an ambulance and like was waiting around. So it's one of these things where, in reality, there's nothing we could have done. Like this guy was hell bent on wreaking havoc and trying to kill the governor. And his ultimate goal was to try to get to that podium to blow himself up. So when all this was happening, everyone rushed the governor and my commander into this part of the hospital where they could have some cover. Jason, like. I guess instinctively knew something wasn't right. He sees this guy and and interdicts him. Something just inside him says there's something wrong. There's with something this wrong guy. with this guy, and he interdicts him and basically, you know, hits him with the rifle and then knocks him to the ground and shoots around into his leg. And the guy's still going, but the angles he is at, he's not able to shoot him right in the head. So I mean, it was. I, it all I remember is he was. T- oh man, I just remember. I remember him. He was like doing a death dance with this suicide bomber. Like, well, in was... preparation for this conversation, I read through his Silver Star citation. citation. Yeah. And to recap, Sergeant First Class Jason Fetty recognizes that this guy is a suicide bomber. He runs towards the combatant, which I think in itself speaks volumes, tackles him then starts to drag him away from the crowd and his brothers and sisters in arms. Knowing that 
this combatant is likely to blow himself up and Jason up. Right. So he is sacrificing himself for the lives of his brothers and sisters and also those that he was there to protect. Do I have that about right? Yeah, I mean, you know, he when the guy tried to detonate the second time, Jason was able to get away. But at that time, the guy was wasn't going to be moving. He was still trying to crawl. So Jason was able Jason to... Jason had been able to shoot to a couple him. of rounds into his legs right. once he dragged him away right. from the crowd. And so he was able, the guy was on the ground, and when he tried to see him detonate again, Jason basically just lunged where he could to hunker down, and the rest of us started shooting at the suicide bomber, including myself. So we're all launching rounds into the sky, and... I, I think I got, I think maybe I got one or, one or two rounds off before I could shoot again. That's when the guy detonated. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever know what's going on that day. All I know is I ended up on my knees and blood started, blood started coming out and it wouldn't stop. And it did not stop until I got to a, combat surgical hospital and I was on my knees and I knew I knew right away I was missing teeth so I looked down see if I could I don't know why I looked down but later on all my teeth were just in a mangled mess I mean my it, it, it just a ball bearing went in right here shrapnel and it just blew out knocked out these five teeth shattered my jaw and um, I was still conscious and I, I stood up and I don't know what it was in me. I was so scared, but I remember saying, I remember thinking to myself, like, I need to be as calm as I can be because people are going to be looking at me and they're going to need to know. They, I don't need them freaking out. I can do all the freaking out I want in my head, but I need to be, I need to be calm and do everything I can to stay alive. So the vest is detonated. A ball bearing is launched from this vest, blows out the lower half of your jaw and many right. of your teeth. Right. I think it's important to point out, too, that Sergeant First Class Jason Fetty actually miraculously survived. survives. He got shrapnel in the buttocks and in the jaw and the side. And he's got severe, like, traumatic brain injury and... He was a PT stud before we, he got injured. You couldn't run now 100 yards without getting a severe migraine. And you now have a son named after Jason. That's right. I named my, I named my son, my first son, after Jason. And you feel like without him, oh, he saved your life. He saved all of our lives. I mean, there were, I think there were six of us that got injured. What's funny is I was the farthest one away, and I got the, I got the only life-threatening injury. I don't know how that works out. I have so many thoughts going through my head, Jordan. I mean, number one, maybe this is selfish, but I'm like, I don't know if I'm the type of guy that would run towards that. And then once I realized this is probably it, continue to drag this guy away. That's such a rare human being. And it is. You know, I use words like sacrifice and hero and unbelievable, and it sure makes those 
those words feel inappropriate now. Just what a what an outstanding human being and a, and a hero for sure. But to go back to your injuries, you no. take a ball bearing, and it's it's fair to say you're bleeding out there in coast. You start to describe your feelings, what you were thinking. You were trying to stay calm. Get into that a little more. What what were you thinking? Now you're going. Wait a second here. I'm losing a lot of blood. This isn't good. Where's your mind at? You know, I think you just go into a state of shock. You know, you just everything starts to rapidly happen, but then slow down. And um, yeah, it's just processing everything that's trying to happen. It just overloads your your senses. And um, all I remember is they got me into the back of my Humvee because I was in the front seat of my Humvee going out there. Now I'm in the back seat. And I remember it was um, uh, Petty Officer Kerry Leeper. He was he was on our team. He was my intel analyst, my intel NCO. He he lives in North Dakota now, works for the VA. And then Claudia Lozano, who's a mail carrier in Florida, and she'd already had a, gotten a Purple Heart herself in a separate incident. And uh, I remember them both looking back at me, and I could see that I could see that I could see that the horror and the terror in their eyes. And it, it they was, were worried they were going to lose you. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was that I was the blood, the blood was so thick and it was starting to get cold because it was warm when it leaves your body, but it starts to get cold. It got everywhere. I mean, so what saved you? What was it that? So I wrote, so, okay, so I have to kind of back up after I got hit. I remember this random guy pulling me behind this wall and he threw his M4 in my lap and he's like, if anybody comes out of there that you don't recognize, you need to waste them. And then all of a sudden, he, this medic starts wrapping my job with his gods and he got to the point where it was about that thick, but it was still seeping through. I mean, it wasn't really doing much. Um, later found out that he was an Air Force pararescue medic who was attached to the 82nd and was on that mission. Just happen- And Air Force pararescue medics, if you do research, they're probably the most qualified, highly qualified medics out of all the armed services. That includes Navy corpsmen, U.S. Army Special Forces. They're just, they're beasts. And, uh, you know, like they have to keep a, a sheep or I think a goat alive. They shoot it in the head and they have to keep it alive for 24 hours. I mean, it's pretty. But another stroke of luck. Yeah, I just happened to be one of the on best medics. Team. And, I didn't know who this guy was. So, funny story. I'm sitting in an AA meeting in Colleen, Texas. I, I was in command. This is after I, you know, got fixed up, and uh, I'm sitting in an AA meeting. I'm checking Facebook, and I get this message from this guy, Jeremy Gassert. And I check the message. He's like. Sir, I never knew what happened to you. And this was like in 2009. So two years after. Yeah. And he's like, I never knew what happened to you. I have a lot of guilt and shame because I'm not sure what happened to you. I'm not sure, you know, what happened, but I tried to bandage you up and I was the medic that bandaged you up and 
I called him and we both cried. So he banded you up a huge stroke of luck that the guy right next to you happened to be one of the best in the right. military. Yeah. And they get you back so to where? To they the put base me, and then they put you on a plane and get you well, to a hospital. They put me in a Humvee. They put me in my Humvee and they drove me about a mile down the road. They had a part of the contingency plan we had is if something did kick off, we had a we had a landing zone that we had pre designated where we would set up a landing zone, put out what's called a VS-17 panel, which is like this fluorescent panel that we stick in the ground and you throw smoke grenades and you start calling in the nine-line medevac, which you call it in for a chopper, a chopper to come in and pick you up. So all I remember is I'm sitting there and they've got, by this time they've got an IV on me and I'm standing up and they want me to sit down and every time I would sit down I'd start to choke and so finally I just told I just I couldn't talk but I waved I was like I, just, I need to stand up so they let me stand up and in that medevac video you can see me I'm standing up and that gauze is on me and I don't know how I'm still walking under my, under my own power because I've lost a lot of blood and then the choppers come in they put Jason on the chopper with me and we held each other's hands we wheels up you know, right before I got on, I took my Aggie ring off because I was afraid the doctors would cut it off. Had been with me on my tour in Iraq as well, and we went wheels up and we flew and we held each other's hand and we got off. This team of medics and nurses come rushing towards me, and they try. I'm still walking, and they're they want they're trying they're trying to cut my holster off my leg, and I'd paid a lot of money for this holster because it was a Blackhawk Serpa holster where it would lock in the place. And so I push him out of the way and I'm like taking it off myself because I didn't want him to cut it off. I just <laughs> spent a lot of money. And they were like, please, sir, please. And I was like, I was, I was able to take it off. And I walk into the, the cash into the emergency room. And it was a tent hospital and kind of like a mash unit. And, uh, they put me up on a table. And I'm sitting with my legs kind of dangling over. And after that, I don't remember anything else. Your next memory is back in D.C.? My next memory, I believe, was in Lawnstool. Which is where? Uh, Germany. I wake up and they're like, hey, sir, you know, you've been wounded. Your jaw is wired shut. You've been trached. So I had a, you know, trach in my throat. And I had to punch it and a tube in my stomach. And they said... You know, you've been traked and you can't talk. So here's a piece of paper if you want to say anything. And so I write on there, I'm like, where's my dad? Your dad, the nurse said, your dad has been notified. He'll meet you in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're about to put you, we're about to put you under and you'll wake up in Washington, D.C. You, you know, we're going to fly to Andrews Air Force Base. You'll wake up and then you'll end up being bust the Walter Reed. And so were you aware that you were okay at this point? Were you still scared that Oh, I was still man, I was on narcotics and, you know, just my whole world was spinning. I found out later that Jason made it all the way to Lonstool with me in Germany. And he was trying to get on the flight to go with me to Walter Reed. He tried to get on that flight to DC. He didn't want to leave my side. And uh, it wasn't until the last minute they they booted him from the flight because they had another injury that was more severe and they needed space. 
So anyway, they fly me into Andrews Air Force Base. I wake up in the ICU at Walter Reed. I mean, the ICU is just, it's a horrible place to be. I mean, it's small, it's cramped. You've got nurses and doctors running in and out all times of the night. When I wake up, I was worried, I was, yeah, I was worried, like, how do I look? You know, and the nurse is like, you look fine. Your lips are all chapped, but, you know, you get spar, you're fine. You, you look, look horrible. You're not disfigured, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I asked, where's my dad? You know, I wrote down, where's my dad? He's like, he's trying to get up here. There's been a big snowstorm that's hit the eastern seaboard. We're trying to get him up here as soon as we can. But there are two, there are two people here that want to see you, and they say they know you. And I'm just so out of it. I'm like thinking, who do I know up here? And anyways, I look over at this little bedside table and I notice there's this blue box. And I write, what's that? And they, they're like, oh, that's your, that's your purple heart. Would you like to see it? And so I nod my head and they bring it and they open it up for me. And it, it just, it was a surreal moment. It's like, you know, you hear about the Purple Heart and you hear about other people getting it. You hear, and to see it for the first time, you're, you've got one now. It was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, obviously, there's more prestigious awards. Obviously, the Medal of Honor, Silver Star, which is what Jason got, which, by the way, there may be a chance he might get that upgraded. I hope to. Mellow Bonner. I think he deserves it. I've seen other guys that have done similar things, suicide bombers, and they've got the Mellow Bonner. The guy gave his life for his brothers and sisters. It just so happened to be that he survived. He understood Brett, what he was doing. He Brett, knew Brett, that this I mean, guy was about to blow himself up, and he was Brett, dragging him away from the crowd, Brett, sacrificing Brett, himself. I, if that I doesn't know, get the Medal of Honor, I don't know what does. I right, and so I, you know, you know, just seeing, I don't know, like, um, seeing that for the first time, I just was like, whoa, it was pretty heavy. And then I've got goosebumps just just thinking about it, dude. I mean, it is unreal, unreal. I mean, for both of you, but him and it, absolutely. Yeah. And so the two guys that were waiting for you happened to be Texas A&M classmates. Is that correct? Right. So, yeah. So they're like, you know, we got to get you in your own room. You can't, we can't let them see you because they're not family members. You can only let family and I see you. But the plan is to get you stabilized. And then hopefully in a day or so, we'll get you in your own room and then we'll get to have visitors. So, you know, the next day they got me in my own room and they're like, hey, these guys, they haven't left they want to see you they say they're your friends and so do you want to see these people and i'm like sure and so in walked two of my fish buddies that were in my outfit in the core and one of them uh jonathan murphy he was then a captain he's now a lieutenant colonel he's stationed in belgium with nato but he was he was a platoon leader at the tomb of the unknown at the time and so he had seen the casualty report come in and he'd saw my name popped up and he was like, oh and he told dustin who was a friend of mine who was working for one of those three-letter agencies. It was like, hey, let's get over to Walter I Reed. I was wondering how they figured out. That's how they figured it out so quickly. And I wasn't particularly close to Dustin. I wasn't particularly close to Jonathan either, but Dustin was one was the one buddy of ours that he's a great guy, but he a lot of times 
people don't get along and I did not get along with him. He's one of the buddies. I was like, if I never saw him again, it was no skin off my nose, but they showed up and, uh, Dustin noticed I didn't have my Aggie ring on and he took his Aggie ring off and put it on my finger and let me work the rest of the time I was there. And, you know, and, uh, but those relationships obviously stuck and in right. a time like that, it didn't matter that maybe you didn't get along. They were going to be there. They were going to be in Dustin. I, and I, I remember writing on this piece of paper, like Dustin, why are you here? We didn't get along very well. He's like, you know, we made a promise our fish year to be there for each other, no matter what. And, uh, you know, they sang the spirit of Aggieland to me and they stayed with me until my dad got there. And, uh, it's the Aggie connection. I mean, I'm proud to have graduated from Rice. I have a Rice ring, by the way. But, you know, there's some, you know, being, you know, here in Texas, Aggies just, there's just something, there's something off about them. <laughs> there's something weird about Aggies. You know, they're pretty loyal, you know, and, you know, they stayed by my side until my dad got there and, um, it was a special thing. And speaking of Aggies, Secretary of Defense Gates ends up visiting. You yeah, there. I was, uh, you know, a few days from being discharged, and uh, yeah, Gates walked into my room and gave me his card and uh, gave me his coin. Yeah, it's kind of a big thing in the military to hand out coins, you know, for you know for different events or different achievements, and you know, I just had my trach taken out. So I had to press down on my throat to talk, you know, I had this little bandage show, you know, I was telling them, you know, the last time I saw you was getting my degree and shaking your hand at Reed arena. And he kind of, he kind of laughed and his wife, Becky was there. And it's kind of like full circle to see him as secretary of defense. You know, you talk about, you talk about a loyal bipartisan American that if you looked that up in the dictionary, his, his face should be there. So you end up, a number of surgeries, untolds amount of PT, but recovering. And then of all things, you decide to rejoin and you had the opportunity to medically retire, but chose to continue to serve. What played into that decision? One man, Major General Charles Costanza. I met him when he was a fairly new lieutenant colonel at division, first cavalry division. When I got back to Fort Hood, I was convalescing and I was going to have the last four surgeries at Brook Arm Medical Center. So I would be moving back and forth between Fort Hood and Fort Sam Houston and San Antonio. So they stuck me on a division staff job and they basically said, Jordan, your job is to heal. Come in when you want, check in when you want, whatever you need. This is, this is basically a placeholder job. Like if you need a day off, you're not feeling good, you can come and go. Just check in with us. That's all we're asking. They essentially carved a slot out for me to just be be a staff officer, and I didn't really have any job or responsibility. I was they were starting the process to get me medically retired, and I was pretty. I was like, "Man, I'm ready to get out." Like I just, I ended up meeting this lieutenant colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Cassandra. And I never really had a leader take an interest in my life. Like I didn't really, like my company commanders in Iraq when I was a platoon leader, my squadron or my battalion commander, they were, they were nice people, but they, they never took the time to really mentor me. They didn't take time to develop leaders. So I met this Charles Costanza guy and he's just kind of just started mentoring me and, I'm, and, he asked me, he's like, uh, Jordan, have you thought about staying in? And I said, sir, I'm broke. Like, number one, I was supposed to get out 
anyways, because my career is over with this Gomer, you know, that's why I volunteered. He's like, your career is not over. You know, it's not over. He kind of talks like a raspy voice, you know, like this. And he's like, Jordan, your career is not over. And I was like, I think it is. And, and, you know, and plus, look at me. I've got four surgeries. I mean, look at me. I'm still broke. He's like, well, I got it. Just get your surgeries done and then come command for me in the seventh cavalry. Like, well, sir, I still have a bunch of surgeries. He's like, I got it. I got it. That's kind of one of his phrases. He'd always say, I got it. He's like, just get your surgeries done. Go to the career course at Fort Benning. So I told him, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested. He's like, well, if you change your mind, let me know. Well, I ended up talking to my sponsor, Mark, my AA sponsor. And I remember telling him about this. Costanza guy and I'm like yeah I met this guy and he wants me to command and he's telling me to stay in and Mark told me without skipping a beat he said I think this is God talking to you I think you need to, to do this I think you need to stay in and go command I'm like I'm not a good officer like I had a gomer I had a mediocre I had mediocre OERs my my attitude had gone to shit I mean, I had a, I have to admit, I didn't have a great a- attitude after my letter of reprimand. I was not a good officer. I was, up until this point, I was not a great officer. I was mediocre. To this day, I still feel bad for my soldiers that I led as a platoon leader as a lieutenant. I don't feel like I gave them what I gave my soldiers as a captain, as a troop commander level. I don't think I gave them the same level of leadership that I, but, you know, I had to go through my journey. And so Mark was like, you need to listen to this guy and reconsider that offer. So a couple of months ago, you know, it goes by. I go to Costanza. And I call him Uncle Chuck. A lot of people call him Uncle Chuck. I didn't call him that at the time, but I was like, hey, sir, does, does that offer still stand? He's like, yes, absolutely. So yeah, I went, I went to the court, got my surgeries done, had, you know, had to get my jaw sawed in half, get the bite lined up, get a bone graft, get implants. I mean, it was, it was about 18 months start to finish. And the last part was done at Fort Benning where they put the teeth in and, uh, graduated from the career course in December, showed up at 17 in January of 09, was on a plane. I guess in February, and I took command of Apache Troop 17 Cav in April of 2009. I think it's so important to point out to people in leadership positions to take that extra step and let the people beneath you know when you recognize talent, when you recognize achievement. Don't sit silent. Take the time to mentor people. You know, I've had the privilege of running a company. And I had a mentor tell me that. Make sure they know you see the effort they put in. Make sure they know you see what they're giving. And it sounds like that's what Uncle Chuck did for you, is he recognized something in you and he took the time to mentor you, which is not something all leaders do. I think it's a great message for leaders. You know, continue to grow, continue to mentor others. And that's that's an awesome thing he did. And it it changed the course of your life. Right. Not to gloss over, you did have another tour in Iraq, but then eventually after 12 years of service, you decide to retire. Were you ready at that point? Was it a tough transition or you were, you were ready at that point? I was, I was not ready. I was not ready. 
it's amazing. Like my career did a 180 because someone gave a shit about me and they mentored me. And everything, every leader since then, I measure against him. My whole life kind of did a 180. I, you know, getting sober and then and then meeting Uncle Chuck like changed my life. And so I successfully commanded in combat again and got selected for a second company command. Got ranked top three out of 30 commanders. Did really well. So my career was looking fairly good. It's just like my life just completely shifted and, and for the better. And uh, it's really because of sobriety. It's the underpinning. And then having a mentor like Uncle Chuck. And yeah, you know, I ended up graduating from Rice. And then uh, my next assignment was Fort Riley. I was going to be a, an operations officer at division as a major. You know, it was it was a great ride. And then what happened is they had what's called the Officer Separation Board, the OSB. And basically the Army had become, I guess, bloated with officers. And so they needed to start cutting people. So I got noticed that I was on the chopping block. You know, they said, you know, thanks for your service, but, you know, it's time for you to go. But my chain of command at Fort Riley with the first entry division said, we're going to put you through a med board so that you get a pension, you get access to active duty health care. And man, it was a blessing. And so instead of getting OSB being separated, I got out on a medical retirement. And that made that transition a little easier. For a me. lot easier. Transitions oh. back to civilian life can be really, really challenging. It's and, still challenging. Yeah. Like, Clay, if, if, if you gave me the choice of being the top broker making a million dollars a year or commanding a, a, a cavalry squadron or battalion, a tank battalion, I'd rather command a tank battalion. Well, that book I mentioned earlier, which you're definitely going to need to leave with, called Tribe by Se- Sebastian Younger, I recommend it to anyone. He speaks about, you know, he was a war correspondent and one that embedded with these teams, put on a flap jacket, put on a helmet. His right. partner ended up dying doing this. And he had PTSD. He had similar feelings. And the two things he pointed out over and over again with soldiers when they're coming back is one, a sense of entitlement and affluence that not realizing realizing how good we have it. And then two, we kind of hit on this earlier, is a sadness over our propensity to fight amongst each other on ins- insignificant issues and to speak about each other, our fellow citizens, with contempt. Did you feel a little bit of that? What was it for you coming back into society that makes you say, I'd rather be on the battlefield? I loved having that impact on soldiers and caring for soldiers. And I just loved it. I loved the brotherhood. I loved you had a community, a community, you had a right? Tribe. And I you, mean, that's, right? And you don't really have that. And I've have yet to find something that replicates that. You know, probably was, never will. Probably never. You can rival what you guys did together, right? The I, sacrifices you made. I don't think me as a civilian could ever really fully grasp what that feels like, and that's, that's right. the thing that I think you're doing now. This is a nice transition into the work you're doing now with veterans. We spoke earlier about your honesty, about your struggles, your insomnia, your drinking, your PTSD. Right. You consistently see a therapist. And again, right. I think speaking about these issues and destigmatizing these issues right. is powerful in itself. But 
talk to us about your taking the extra step of trying to create community again for your brothers and yeah. sisters. So what I've done recently, a soldier that uh, was not my troop just recently died, and we believe it's, it was an overdose. And I've had one of my staff sergeants that was, I loved him, uh, Sergeant Patterson. He died in an alcohol-related car accident got disoriented in a snowstorm and drove into an embankment on some farm road in Nebraska in the middle of a snowstorm. My brother, my own brother, Sergeant Jared Inger, struggled with uh, multiple addictions, you know, drug and alcohol-related addictions for since he was a teenager and been in several treatment programs and just couldn't turn the corner and uh, he, he died of a you know, a, a drug-related or drug-induced death in, in uh, it'll be three years in, in August. One of my special memories with him is flying up to re-enlist him when we were, this is my last tour in Iraq, and Uncle Chuck was able to get a chopper to fly me up there for his re-enlistment, so I got to be his re-enlistment officer at Christmas. We get, were able to get a chopper to fly him down, we spent the we spent uh, Christmas together, and all my soldiers loved him. He, I mean, he was, one, he was one of them. He was a 19 Delta. He was a scout, just like all the scouts that I was leading. And I remember sitting in a guard tower with my brother so that my soldiers could have the day off, and my brother came up in the tower with me and just talking about life. And those are the memories I try to hold dear, but having this soldier, it wasn't even in my troop died just recently. What it's made me do is I've realized I've got to do a better job of carrying on kind of what Uncle Chuck taught me, and that's you still look after your soldiers even after the mission ends. So I've been I've been trying to make it a point to call, you know, at least a couple soldiers a week that I commanded and let them know, hey, I'm here for you. I love you. You know, what I found is quite a few of the soldiers I've served with are no different than me. They've, they're struggling with addiction. Some of them are in recovery. Some of them aren't. There's one that I can spot an addict from a mile away because I've been in it. And I've, I know he's not ready for the message. And it's sad because I'm worried that you know, he could be one of the statistics. And uh, just doing that is, has helped me. I've started going now that uh, COVID is over. I've been going to AA meetings. And I've picked up a new sponsee. And, and it's stuff like that, giving back to others. You know, that's that's the purpose of life. And I, I guess what I want to say is I'm just a normal dude. Like, I'm not, I'm nothing special. You know, I wasn't a Navy SEAL. I wasn't a Green Beret. I wasn't Delta. But, you know, I just try to put one foot in front of the other and do my best. And some days my best isn't great. Some days it's better than others. And I think the thing I would tell people that are struggling with, with depression and, and and with addiction is don't give up. As my sponsors say, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. One of the things that I used to tell people at our company, which I stole from someone else, is that you don't have to do extraordinary to be extraordinary. So you say you're a normal person. Just picking up the phone three times a week or three times a month, I forgot what you said, and reaching out to someone is not extraordinary in itself, but you probably know not a lot of people do that. Right. And again, 
it's not only helping them, it's probably helping you more. And we, again, like you mentioned, we need community. We need to share resources. We need to share time. We need to help each other. We've evolved to do that. Right. And I think that those small acts really do add up to extraordinary. If we want to help, if people want to help, where do you advise them to go? Where are the good causes to, to help? I know like Camp Hope here in town does a lot. They they do a lot with for PTSD. Camp Hope is a, is a good program. Uh, the Fisher House is another good charity. Uh, you know they set up homes on military installations and VA centers, any medical center, where like people that are getting surgeries or some kind of medical procedure at a military facility, their families have a place to stay that's safe. And the Fisher House, you know, they do a they do a phenomenal job. Operation Finally Home. That's that's. Uh, organization i'm trying to get fetty i've gotten fetty linked up with well brother it's been an absolute honor having you, you here today thank you so much for sharing your story i uh i'm pretty sure it's going to help some people and uh continue you. doing what you're doing thank you man appreciate it thank you